The title of this book that Aditi is holding is Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. (laughs) It's like an academic tome that Aditi has double underlined in some places with references to how, like, I think it's basically how, like, the way that um, data is collected is gendered in many ways. Yes. Yes, it is. (laughs) I'm... I just, I'm just so proud that you're like dorking it out <laughs> in such a way. I learn from the best. Oh, <laughs> you know, I have to say, I even, I ordered this book to my house, my home in Minnesota. And my parents looked at this when it came and like, they both rolled their eyes. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, this one's nodding out again. Oh, but this is so, you know, there's this, there's this whole section in this book that talks about how, I mean, our, our service women, our army women, our military women, actually are more way more vulnerable than our men mm. uh, primarily because everything from our bulletproof vests to our uh, weapons are designed keeping the average male size in mind mm. yeah um like this the male palm size the male chest size bulletproof vests uh, actually don't s- sit snug on breasts yeah. Uh, which you know human women have and human women <laughs> you know <laughs> and and therefore it leaves them more vulnerable mm. uh, when they're out on a, I guess a mission where they might get shot yeah uh, then a man who is wearing a vest I feel like when I think about women in service I just think about the experience but I don't necessarily think about just the mechanics yeah and how that design would not be a fitted for women. Yeah. I, I mean, and you know what? I mean, design aside, I have a tough time imagining women in service. <laughs> like, I mean, it's not something that I've seen very easily and frequently. Um, if you, every war movie you see, like I saw Dunkirk. Yeah. Dunkirk, not a single woman was employed on screen for that movie. Yeah. From what I know of 1917, which I have not seen, but I can speak with some authority because... Um, you saw the preview. I saw the preview. <laughs> is that it's all men. Yeah. And it's all men. And so I've I've always conventionally considered it a just like like why would a woman join the army? You know, women don't do these manly things like start wars. Not even start wars, but fight wars. Yeah. Uh, and so it's just weird to even imagine. Yeah, but I think it's really good that you admit that it's hard to imagine it. Because even we who are like feminist women, I think it speaks to like if you don't see it represented. Yeah. You know, it's hard to imagine. What about what about in film here? What about in are there representations of women in service in the army or navy or in the eighties, there was a TV show called Forgy. Uh which had uh Forgy like the digital like <laughs> no. the like what? <laughs> for forgy as in cause uh, cause in Hindi military means forge. And so oh. <laughs> The forge is forged in fire. Yeah. And not and like a Vodafone plan. <laughs> not a Vodafone plan. Uh, and so uh, and this this and it's the show that launched the career of I mean one of the biggest stars in Bollywood, which was uh, Shah Rukh Khan. Yeah. Um and so so he he sort of entered our TV screens. And I now recall that it was a cast of four men. I think actually there are a good number of um women in service in India. What? 
That's yeah. ridiculous. You know, I mean, that's crazy. Because also, just conventionally, fighting and being at war is not a feminine quality. Like, it's not a, it's not a laudable feminine quality. For sure. There's hardly any few, like, there's hardly any Indian parents who would proudly be like, my daughter in the <laughs> army now. And you're like, what? Because army is also associated with, like, typically boyish man groups. For sure. You know, ma- machismo, masculinity, all that stuff. So it's weird. Like to well, and all the things that we try to, like, air quote, protect women from are all in that environment, right? That's all of it, both inside the unit, yeah. right? It's this super masculine environment, both inside, but then also outside. Like, if you are actually pitched into a, a conflict actually, in some way. Yeah, yeah. Women that go into these roles or LGBTQ folks who go yeah. into these roles, um, they're really going into environments that are... Hostile, outright, <laughs> actually. Hostile. And one thing I'm really curious to talk to our guest about today, um, Anuradha, is she was also, she took on a leadership role within the <laughs> Marines, which in, in the US is, the Marines are the elite, um, like the Marine Corps is the elite Super disciplined, best of the best um, core. Like, they are like they're the cons of the. <laughs> they're like, <laughs> they're like, like all the films are made about the Marines because the Marines are you know so hardcore Ooh. and so cool. So she also took on a leadership role within like the suit, like the most masculine of masculine Ooh. disciplines within the United States military industrial complex. So like, what does that mean to be a female leader of like four hundred? Marines as a woman oh my lord like she you know they say like, you have to know the, know all the rules in order to break them she be- she found out all the rules and became the enforcer of them yeah. that's that's really crazy <laughs> that's listen I'm really nervous for her to come like should we stand up when she enters the room or whatever <laughs> we have to salute her every time we ask her a question oh um, I've been following her on Instagram after that and she, she was over at uh, a literary literature festival and uh, she was talking about her book, by the way, which is called Unbecoming, which is one of those books that's got a shocking amount of candor and uh, very well written uh, and an incredibly interesting life she has sort of described of her own. And so she was out there at this festival, literary festival, talking about her book. And then one of the people in the um, in the audience, which is so typical Indian uncle, he raises his hand and he's like, See, but why should women go to war? <laughs> women should not be at war. And uh, it is interesting, the relationship that women and war have. Yeah. Uh, because... In the first few world wars, when the men were all away, it was the women that jumped into the workforce mm. and occupied all those positions that had been left empty by the men who had been drafted. Yeah. And that's why when the men came back, they were like, where are our jobs? Give us mm. our jobs back. But by that time, women had tasted freedom yeah. um, and careers. And they were like, hey, you know what? This is really nice, actually. And so that's one thing, right? Is that That's one aspect of the relationship is that... Um, it sort of freed up space for women hmm. uh, while the men were out there dying. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, it also, because when it became not only now that the men are gone, so we'll occupy the jobs that the men have left behind, but it is also, hey, we're coming with you. Yeah. Let's go. And I wonder, I always wonder what a feminized war zone would look like. There wouldn't be one. Like, right? <laughs> 
Meaning like, well, like, can you imagine women uh, in conflict? I feel like we would just talk it out. I mean, you know, the, the, most, the most, yeah, the most womanly war has got definitely got to be the Cold War. Just, we're just being like passive aggressive with each other. These random threats going out. For then, decades. Yeah, for decades. For decades. And then finally everyone's like, ah, fuck it. Now like six decades later, everyone's like, chill. I mean, respect. That's what I have to say. Respect. Yeah, for women you know, in service. Correct. And, and actually, one of the, I mean, you and I are having this discussion about how, like, well, is war really all that great? Um, uh, and she writes about that in her book. She writes about how, you know, um, there's there's lots of people who, like, you know, have these very strong opinions on war. And she's like, a lot of them want to know, why is a woman going to war? You know, fuck it. Actually, we should be working towards ending war altogether. So <laughs> why, why should we fight for women's rights in the middle of uh, an yeah. army if our ultimate, gig, you know, goal is... And let's face it, I mean, with the way our military industrial complex has been, war is not getting over anytime soon. It is the most profitable business yeah. in the world today. Yeah. So it is not getting over anytime soon. And so instead of waiting for the golden day when war will get over and then, you know, all eco- inequality will end, the fight for equal rights needs to happen right now as it is in the existing systems. They need to be shaken up. But um, to say that wait for the dismantlement of the entire system before you get your equality is so unfair. Yeah. It's so unfair. Well, and she, so she's done both. She helped overturn the ban on women in combat. That's ridiculous. Yep. And then she also is, she's done a huge amount of advocacy work around um, the danger of sexual violence against folks serving in the military. And that's that's women that's men that's lgbtq folks it's so much easier to look at a system and point at it and say that's wrong yeah. but when you're in it you know to point to the things around you and say this is wrong is huge i think that's one of the things i admire the most about her i agree oh my god she's come open <laughs> You know, one of the things that like struck me so much about your book was, you, I mean, somebody was like, oh, it's a military memoir. And then an interview that you said, you were like, oh, it's, it's the story of an immigrant. The fact that you talked about your family life and how it affected and informed everything that you do today and you're back in India. Um, has this come sort of a full circle for you? It is. It's, it's karmic. It's like, it's, it's just epic for me because... I'm able to speak about parts of my life and parts of the writing here yeah. that I mm-hmm. that are not appreciated back in the states, ah. and it's like people don't even know if they're if they're sort of they've they've grown up in the United States and you know just with this purely American centric sensibility, like they have no and they could they could be people of color by the way, right? Like it's, yeah. it's not just yeah. white people, but there's just not this appreciation of mm. of what immigrants bring particularly families, like the elders, what they bring to our upbringing, (laughs) you know? And so coming here and speaking with young audiences and seeing like the fire in their eyes and young women and men coming up to me afterwards and asking me about their family situations. And there was this young guy in Kolkata where I just was who was asking me how to be a better ally to his gay friends. And I thought, who are you? And can wow. you come with me everywhere? 
right? Like, could you just plant him in the audience? I was everywhere, just everywhere, <laughs> everywhere, and he just went on and on. I mean, wow. I thought he was gay at first because he was yeah. just asking, me. and then I realized he was an ally, and I was like, "You're just precious, just precious." Did you have this like when you were growing up? You know the language that we're speaking, and at least this generation, the, the younger kids are speaking, is so sort of new, and it's so, mm. um, and and I think. I, I like at least I woke up to it much later in my life. Did you have this while growing up? No, I don't think so. And I also was such a sheltered kid, you know. Even though I was growing up in New York City, which is like yeah. the Mumbai of the West or something. <laughs> yes, it yeah, is. yes, it is. Yes, it is. It is. What a great analogy. Fact check. Oh, it is yeah. like Mumbai of the West. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was. I was such a sheltered kid. I was. I was. First of all, by nature, I was just kind of timid and quiet, which I'm no longer, thankfully. But my parents were these uber academics, put so much pressure on me to excel academically. And I was growing up with, you know, mostly white kids who just did not grow up with that sensibility. Like they were allowed to pursue, you know, this question, what do you want to be when you grow up? It's, it's like the American question. It's like, I wasn't asked that. I don't have any choices. I'm just <laughs> supposed to get straight A's and then some and, you know, and then do what my parents sort of determine is okay, you know, mm -hmm. among the select subjects. Yeah. But no, there was no freedom of anything. So I, I never developed my own voice, even that timidity. See, my mother was the exception because she had to fight her way through everything yeah. throughout her life, both in India and in the West. So she would try and get me to come out of my shell. What were some of the ways she did that? I mean, she just encouraged me to always raise my hand. She was like, the boys are going to do it whether or not they have anything to say. So, you know, <laughs> might, as well, might as well get in there, right? That is yeah. some solid advice. Yeah, you know, just raise your hand and say anything, like yeah. literally anything under the sun. Yeah. I mean, I would watch my mother... Because again, naturally, I don't, I don't need to take up space. It's not like I need the microphone. But I would watch her always go to the front of the room, grab the microphone, be the first to ask a question at some panel, you know, be the first to say something. I thought this is really interesting. But it was, you know, it's a strategy, right? I think a lot of it is about practice. Just practice. Mm -hmm. Just get your voice out there so that when you really want to say something, like you've you just say it with ease and confidence. Mm. Yeah. She's a great role model that way. Can you tell us also, I want to hear a bit about your relationship with your dad. Yeah. And can you tell us a little bit more about your childhood? When you talk about these cultural norms that American audiences don't understand about growing up in an Indian household. Right. What, I mean, talk, talk, talk yeah. to us a bit about that. So, the, you know, the patriarchy is really embedded in the kind of husband, wife, mother, father dynamic. Mm -hmm. So that, again, in... in as far as the outer world is concerned, like he he's the one who gets paid attention to. She still is the one who has to, you know, raise raise the child, be responsible for food and clothing being washed and all of that. And I'm like, they were both people who, who got their PhDs and were very competitive in their... Like, how does she have time for this? She's how a professor she at Columbia. She's a professor, yeah. yeah, and Ivy League University. And she, was, and she, by the way, like always worked twice as hard as him. But then again, my father would be the one who's applauded. So, uh, you know, in the American context, it was kind of it was it was just odd. I would I would come back to India, and he would be like people would bow at bow at him, you know, kind of touch his feet and ignore my mother. And I didn't understand this dynamic at all. But I was I was raised in a household where I had to study all the time and. Um, and I was very shy. I was kind of under their spell also because they're both professors and they're very outspoken in their their lives. Yeah. So I, I learned to listen. I was very quiet and I learned to listen to their lectures at home. Yeah. <laughs> like they lecture for life and they lecture at home. And my dad, it turns out my dad was quite a bully. And so 
with me, you know. So, like, I grew up this with this kind of controlling father, uh, all the, ne- the the negative sides of, of masculinity, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I was very under his spell, um, fearful of him, you know, wanting to impress him constantly. I've started finding empathy for my father as I grow older, you know, like he was under a lot of pressure. He was bullied by his older brothers. I mean, of course he wouldn't have called it bullying, but you know, all this verbally abusive yeah. language about you're fat, you're not smart enough. You're, you know, my father would call me fat and disgusting and this, and it's all just like this hyperbolic language. Yeah. Like, wow. yeah. who am I supposed to be exactly? You yeah. know, like even to this day, he can't stand the fact that my hair is curly. I'm like, that's how it is. Yeah. You cannot get rid of the curls, be proud of the curls, like he has his, his hair's curly too <laughs> you know they're trying, your jeans he's trying to tame the curls there are jeans and like curls are in by the way yeah. not that that matters yeah. but it was one of the first things we said about you the moment we opened it I was like oh my god her hair is amazing <laughs> and she's like do you want to read the book before you gush and I was like yeah, I think I'll do that that's hilarious <laughs> but you know it's just it's, it's just like a mean spiritedness that yeah. Yeah. So this, this kind of hierarchy is built yeah. into all aspects yeah. of our yeah. lives and, you know, it's... And he's carrying the pressure of being a, a colored person in a world that is almost designed to be against him and and then he has to fend for what he thinks are the lives of two women and, I, I mean, our dads also take on so much yeah. Yeah. Um, that it's... like And you're right, I mean, finding the empathy uh, for... Uh, a, a paternal figure who has hurt you so much mm. intentionally or unintentionally mm. well right, right. Um, is I mean is, is one of the most sort of humbling and um, like I mean yeah, um, a very humbling experience yeah. is, that, is that what is that something like along the lines of what you may have felt when you were doing the when you were doing the empathy finding? Yeah, well, I, so I joined the Marines, which is a far more abusive and patriarchal <laughs> system. Right? That was your yeah. response? So I know, I like left this patriarchal upbringing and then replaced it with a far more menacing one. <laughs> but then, I mean, in so, you know, this is also kind of karmic. Like, I don't know how all these decisions get made in the end. You know, yeah. you sort of follow your dreams and you end up in these strange places. But then I left the Marines after, like, suffering horrendous d- amounts of discrimination and harassment. I was traumatized, yeah. right? And then in retrospect, my parents seemed pretty tame, right? So, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, actually, my parents raised me to believe I could do anything I wanted to do. You know, my, my, my father never, uh, never thought I couldn't achieve intellectually, right? Mm. I mean, physically, like, they, they look down on physical things, but, <laughs> but that's, a, you know, I'll forgive them that. But then I realized that my father had these huge elements of, of feminism in his, really? in his behavior. Yeah, so, like... So, like, when, unpack that. Like, what kind like, So, the big thing is that my parents met when my mother was still married to her first husband in India. You know, this was in the 50s and 60s. And how did, what a how did she come to marry him? So, I mean, she fell in love. She was a young student. It was kind of her rebellion. Her father was like, don't marry this scumbag. And I'm paraphrasing. I don't know if scumbag exists in Gujarati. I'm sure some some version. But she did it and then realized, yeah, my dad was right. Like, this guy is bad news. He was abusive. He was cheating on her. It was horrendous. And she just decided she's got to leave him, which you know, Indian women don't do. To make that decision in the 50s, 60s. Yeah, she is just heroic like what a brave woman 
so then my dad enters the picture. They meet in the States where my mother gets a full scholarship and was like, you know, I'm not going to let this mm. scumbag first husband destroy my life. So she goes to the States and she continues her studies there and gets a PhD and meets my dad. And of course, he falls in love with her because she's an amazing woman. Mm. Obviously, oh, he has hey good taste. And so, <laughs> but, you know, scandalous. She's still married. His family, also coming from a traditional family, is like, stay away from this woman, you know, she's married, right? Mm. And he ignores them and says, no, I'm in love with her. I'm going to stay by her side and support her. So my father's a feminist oh, because yeah. he bucked the system and said, no, I'm, you know, forget all of that, all of the, those customs about, you know, tarnishing the family name and whatever. Literally, they had me... You know, before they'd even had a formal wedding, mm. you know. Again, this was a while. This wow. was in now the, the early 70s. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. It's, I mean, they were badass. Yeah. That's kind of right? awesome. And then when she gets a tenured position at Columbia, he leaves his job to move to New York with her. His job at, at MIT. At yeah. MIT. Yeah. Right? I'm like, Dad, you're a feminist. Yeah. He's a feminist. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, he can be a bully, but he's a feminist. Yeah. Like, you know, for wow. his time, my God. Like, yeah. there, you know, there are guys my age who won't do that. This great incident in the book where you talk about, I mean, I, I say great incident now, but it was not great. Uh, <laughs> I swear your mom um, threatened to kill herself yeah. because, uh, you know, she read your diary. And... Uh, she shouldn't have read my diary. She shouldn't Why have read the, the diary. diary. <laughs> Damn it, hasn't every parent seen that film? Know, you know, you read the diary not. and it never ends well. <laughs> yeah, so I was about 16 and I fell in love with my best friend who was a girl. And this shocked the heck out of my mother. A little less so my father. He was much more calm about it. My mother was hysterical, like the histrionics and the melodrama and the crying and the shrieking. This and I mean, it was Indian like, parents. it was really the something. Oh, it, the musical. <laughs> I mean, the music, yeah, mu musical theater is really the genre we're talking about. I, and it was, but it, it, like that would have been enough, right? That's a lot for a, a young person to take. But then she immediately threatened to kill myself if I didn't break it off with my friend. Yeah. And... I was an Indian girl, right? Like yeah. your mother threatens to kill herself. Like I took it at face value. Oh my God, I'm about to, I'm about to kill my mother. That's, that's wow. how I took it. It's like, I am harming my mother in this way. And it was kind of compounded because I always grew up with this feeling that my mother was holding on to some trauma or sadness, which she was from yeah. this abusive marriage and all the fallout from that. I always thought it was my fault. Because kids, kids are like that. They think that, you know, they're responsible for their parents' pain. You know, it's and like at, mom's crying. It's my fault. And at that time, had you known about her previous life? No. No. Yeah. So, you know, what is all that about? So much silence upon silence upon silence. So then she threatens to kill herself. I break up with my friend and I trap that part of me you know, jump back in the closet, so to speak. I didn't know there was a closet to jump back into. I mean, it was just, you know, I shut down. I shut down emotionally, psychically, everything for years because I was responsibility then for the health and welfare of my mother. How did you, how did it first come into your mind that you might want to join the Marines? I was always physical. I liked, I loved sports. That's, that's the easy story, you know, because I wanted to do something physical and extreme mentally. Give us the hard story. The hard story is, I think, I was coming to terms with being a girl who had been sexually assaulted, who had a mother who had this incredibly traumatic past with abuse, mm -hmm. 
and some part of me was always fighting. Like I wanted to be stronger. I wanted to be physically able to defeat these bad guys. You know, it was very, it was cosmic, right? Um, And I, I think you have this interesting quote. You said, so I joined an institution in which my parents would have no influence over me. At the time, I didn't realize I was replacing the control of my family asserted over me with an even fiercer and more violent form of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us, what, is the, what are the Marines? Mm-hmm. How do they differ from other branches? Uh-huh. Uh, and can you walk me through a day of training? So the Marines are the smallest, fiercest branch of the U.S. military. Uh, and they're considered very elite. And they consider themselves, we consider ourselves to be <laughs> kind of the best of the best of the best. And it's the, the one with the fewest number of women. So the most guys, the most white guys, the most straight white guys, although there are a lot of gay guys too, let me nice. be honest. Yeah, nice. so the, but, but it's, it's very masculine. Um, women are not welcome still. And so, yeah, I just wanted to be in the fiercest, most, most physical, toughest branch of the military. A day, a day in the life of training. Uh, well, I mean, basic training is legendary. Boot camp in the Marine Corps is legendary. So movies have been made about it. So if you really want a good idea, go see Full Metal Jacket. <laughs> Yeah, oh, yes. wow. An yeah. exercise in insanity, but yes. it's quite real. Um, really, they, they in terms of the joking. psychological. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drill instructors trauma. can't get away with that that level of intensity anymore or hazing. <laughs> <laughs> but the but, spirit of it is very accurate. Well, in what you described in your book, it's quite intense. Yeah, yeah it's quite intense. Yeah. So it's just like chaotic, screaming, shoving, like your body is in constant motion. There's never any peace. It is just the fog of war around you. And then these drill instructors are like, they're like madmen. They're really demonic. And so I had a drill instructor who I love talking about her. She's, she was, her name's Boffman. She's changed her name. Yeah. She remarried. But um, she's, she's like, she's going to write about me in this book. I need to change my name. I know, exactly. She knew. She knew. Yeah. Uh, bright red hair. And her, you know, she was, she was white and her, her skin would turn red when she got mad, which was always. So she was just like this red dragon everywhere she went. And just fierce fast and like kind of beyond gender because she would just appear and like the guys would be terrified about her too you know everybody's sort of like on the verge of tears wherever she is and a physical beast she didn't want to create female marines you know she's very interested in like kind of abolishing this idea of women are weaker women can't do pull-ups women can't be as strong she's like you have to do the work you have to do twice as much you have to do more than the guys but at least as much as the guys um yeah, I will remember her on my deathbed. That's the kind of influence she had. On <laughs> Do you yeah. think that that's almost a thing that she had to create in order to survive? Yeah, oh, definitely. I, I'm sure she went through incredible trials. Well, you know, when she was a private in the Marine Corps, I can only imagine what she went through. Can you tell me, uh, I think it's nice to get some of, for our listeners, some of the stories of the ways that you spoke up. Can you tell yeah. us a, an example of this was of like when early you spoke early up? level training? I was a lieutenant with like three hundred other lieutenants, mostly guys, uh, maybe a couple dozen women, and um, there was a, a guest officer who was talking about some you know marine leadership. And I asked about submarines. Submarines at that point were still segregated. You could only be on a submarine if you were a man. And why was curious. that? <laughs> why was it? Yeah, for all all the reasons that. Indian generals are apparently using to keep women off submarines here in the Indian military. <laughs> so nothing new. All, it all comes down to the bathrooms. You know, there are no bathrooms for women. What will we do? Oh, we'll no. build a damn bathroom. Oh, no. You know, 
so I stood up and I said, you know, when are, when's the Navy going to integrate submarines? And, and I got booed by this chorus of fellow lieutenants. How many people were there? There were about 300, yeah. 300 so there, people booed you. I mean, maybe not 300. There was a lot of si uncomfortable silence, yeah. too. Sometimes you can hear the uncomfortable <laughs> silence as much as you can hear the booing. Um, you know, but I stood there tall and, you know, proud and whatever. And, and the, the officer responded with, you know, basically, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but um, now submarines are integrated. If women can serve on, women should be able to serve on submarines, period. Yeah. You know, and then of course there's all, you will always hear that, oh, if you integrate women and men, women are going to be assaulted. Like, for, there are so many ways to rip apart this argument. Yeah. First of all, I'm just, you know, sort of appalled that this any head argument. of a military would say that, would literally indict all of its men and say they're a bunch of sexual predators. <laughs> like, just, just think about what you're saying. Yeah. Also, we know for a fact that there are sexual predators in every military that have been preying upon men in the services yeah. since the beginning of time. And so yeah. men have made up the vast majority of sexual assault victims. So what are you saying here, right? So you're appalled that men would assault women, but you're not appalled when men assault men, right? There's a lot, of, there's a lot yeah. to think about here. They're like, yeah, I guess we... we men when they get sexually assaulted they don't talk about it and that's what's convenient to them yeah or you know i mean there's a refusal to actually believe that men would do this to men and then there's a lot of homophobia that's present in this discussion which is to say uh there's a failure to understand that rape assault harassment are fundamentally about power dynamics about yeah. the desire to dominate somebody regardless yeah. of gender yeah. and and that is something that you know we have to get beyond this rape mythology that it's about a man and a woman yeah. Um, and sexual attraction, so to speak. It's about power at the end of the day. And what was the first time you witnessed sexual assault in the Marines? The first time that I remember, um, because officer candidate school was a blur <laughs> of, <laughs> of drill instructors running around us like Tasmanian devils, but um, was probably the basic school. So I wrote about an incident in the book where my roommate, well, I was with three other women in my in my bunk, uh, in my squad, my room. Yeah. <laughs> I'm using a lot of words there. Um, and this guy, this lieutenant, male lieutenant down the hall just barged into our room, just like kicked the door open and jumped into bed with her, attempted to assault her. Um, what? You know, in front, like you're there? I mean, we're all there. It's, it's the dead of night. We're all asleep. And yeah. so like, I'm the only one who wakes up in addition to my poor roommate who's there, you know, trying to get this hulking guy out of her bed. And, and so I like witnessed this whole exchange where she's trying to get him out of bed. My other two roommates are conked out or not saying anything. And then she finally like walks him out, like, or talks him out, I should say. And then nothing is said about it the next day, like by her, by anyone. Um, and I'm just grappling with like, did this happen? Like, what's, what am I supposed to do? And you know, it's not my job to come to the rescue of my roommate. Like, yeah. what does she want to do? Um, and she didn't, you know, she didn't report it and she didn't complain about the guy um, for the probably the same reasons that most people don't come forward, which is they don't want to have anything backfire on them, right? Yeah. Like all of a sudden she's the bad guy, he's not the bad guy. And sure enough, I, I brought it up with another lieutenant in our squad who basically told me to shut the hell up, like you're going to ruin a good man's career. What are the ways that sexual assault is institutionalized in the Marines? Well, there's still this formal segregation. So women are trained separately than men at the, at the 
boot camp level, which, which has, in my opinion, led to the highest rates of harassment and assault in, in the armed services. In other words, the Marine Corps has the highest rates of assault and harassment in, in the U.S. military, and it's not by accident, you know. Literally, there's legal discrimination still. Um, and so, you know, it, which is why, unfortunately, I still say it's like the least safe branch of the military to be in if you're a woman. And yet, you know, if you want that kind of thrill of being in the fiercest branch, you know, you'll go in, right? And I encourage women to join the Marines still. Just go in with your eyes wide open. Mm. Yeah. And rather, you know, you've, I mean, you are possibly the instrument that got, uh, you know, women in combat roles. And the question that I, you know, it struck me, I was like, why do we want women in combat roles? Mm-hmm. Um, but what what does that do for combat? What does that do for the battlefield? Yeah, so it was actually very much a group effort, and and my organization banded with four incredibly brave service women. I call them the Fantastic Four because they're like superheroes. But they 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 were really the face of this lawsuit. Uh, the ACLU, American Civil Liberties mm-hmm. Union, represented us, and so the the, the main face of the lawsuit is MJ Hagar, who was a major in the U.S. Air Force, and she was a helicopter pilot, and she's currently running for Senate in this, the great state of Texas, hey in you. case you're wow. keeping, hey keeping you. track of politics. She's an amazing woman, but she was a when she was flying her pilot, doing rescue missions, she was shot down in Afghanistan and fired back upon the enemy and, you know, suffered injuries and earned these Combat Valor Awards. Um, and, you know, her argument and the arguments of the, the two Marines and the soldier who joined, you know, the soldier also had a purple heart from combat wounds, was, you know, I've been in combat, clearly, yeah. right? Like, I have the wounds to show for it. Um, but I can't actually then go on to a combat assignment that I want to pursue. These The official combat assignments are not open to women, like infantry or Navy SEALs. Or, you know, I can't... One of them wanted to go to ranger school. She was forbidden to go to ranger school, which is, a, which is the Army's premier leadership course. So we brought this lawsuit. And by then, hundreds of thousands of women had already been in combat in the U.S. Armed Forces. That's in ridiculous. Iraq so and ex- Afghanistan. Explain that yeah. to us. Yeah, so on the, on the ground... What was happening was the front lines were changing. The front lines, as we knew it, were no longer existed in Iraq and Afghanistan. The battlefield was changing, the the space. And women also were in these very new roles in Afghanistan and Iraq where they, for instance, you might be a communications Marine and you would be selected to be part of a female engagement team. You'd be attached to an infantry unit and all of a sudden you would be literally patrolling the streets of whatever, Fallujah, uh, alongside a male infantry unit kicking down the doors and going into these homes uh, and villages with the combat arms units. And so, again, exposed to the same scenarios, but not given the official combat assignment. Okay. And so... Wow. And so, so the risks was that, that are taken are exactly the same right. as an infantryman, but right. you don't get the credit? Or you don't the get the credit or even the opportunity to prove yourself in like the same official position as the guy next to you. What we saw, we just used a meritocracy argument, sort of equal, e- equal rights, right? Yeah. Which is if there's an, a level playing field, the exact same tasks for a job, if a woman can meet that standard, then she should be allowed to have the job. Yeah. And it worked. I mean, I think at the end of the day, the American public was outraged that in an all-volunteer force, 
when like everybody else is just sitting at home and watching reality <laughs> reality television, right? Or like yeah, it, right. That they're actually young women. Absolutely. But young women who are volunteering to go to war. Yeah. And then, you know, on so many levels, you're discriminating against them. Yeah. You know, there's high rates of harassment, assault. You're not allowing them to do jobs. And by the way, they're fighting and dying on the battlefield because dozens had died by the time we even brought this lawsuit, you know, alongside their male counterparts. And you're going to disrespect them by saying they, they, they aren't in combat. So the policy needed to change and catch up with the reality that women were in combat. They had been for years, right? And so now what happened was the Marine Corps pushed back. Like the the Department of Defense opened up all jobs. Ultimately, it took a couple of years to women and all schools, all assignments. So women started trying out. And of course, they started passing these these tests and, you know, graduating from these schools. And then, of course... Hurting the boys because the boys are sensitive. Yeah, yeah. If they're tough on I the mean, outside. It was but amazing. No, it was all, all about <laughs> ego. All about ego. Yeah. All at the, at the bottom line is whenever there's resistance to these changes, it's about bigotry. Because you yeah, hear the you. same exact arguments in the Indian military today. Yes. You know, there's no difference between an Indian woman and an American woman, right? Yeah. It's all cultural bias. I mean, it's phenomenal. So at yeah. the end of the day, if a woman can do this job and wants to do this job she shouldn't be restricted from doing that job because you know the, it, again it's an all-volunteer force we need we need the best and the brightest yeah and women are some of the best, best and the, and brightest. the brightest yeah yeah what is the price to pay for um for for being stubborn about telling the truth <laughs> what is because you have been and yeah. like persistently through the book um i you're a troublemaker by by all conventional standards. You are, uh, uh, what is that price to pay? Be called a troublemaker? Sorry. Well, yeah, in the moment, it's quite lonely. You know, if, if you're within an institution where you're the only troublemaker or one of very few, it's lonely. I mean, I can't lie about that. But there's also this moment of realizing you can't, you can't live any other way that Actually, the loneliness is worth it, at least in the short term, <laughs> if it means doing the right thing. I would actually rather be lonely and be okay looking at myself in the mirror, be okay sort of getting out of bed and feeling some kind of peace within me that I'm, I'm doing what's in accordance with my values. It's hard. It's hard doing it alone. Right. But then when you realize on the outside, and this is why patriarchy is so successful, you know, it's like folks in power seem to convince us that we're the only ones who feel this way. We're, you know, we're all alone. You'll never make it. We're not alone. Actually, there are people sort of fighting women and girls fighting these fights on the inside every day in every institution, in every family, which is why social media is so wonderful, you know, for all of us to realize that that women and girls are taking up these fights everywhere. What was going through your mind to sort of transform yourself into the leader that needed to be able to dominate or lead Mm -hmm. 400 Marines? Yeah, I mean, fearlessness, right? There can't be an an ounce of timidity or hesitation in what you do, Um, but kindness goes a long way. And I was, you know, I, I try and see myself as that first and foremost. So, you know, I, I was not about to, to become uh, an abusive, an abusive leader. You've got this, um, I'm sorry to quote you back to you. <laughs> you said, I didn't realize the entire concept of joint leadership, something I would associate. I I was <laughs> Retake. 
The eagerness. I remember that. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes we have to duct tape her to the chair. <laughs> just, just because. Like, <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm quoting you back to you, but I didn't realize the entire concept of joint leadership. Something I would associate years later with women's willingness to work together and share rather than dictate and take credits was not something the core appreciated. And I think that's interesting because I think women who serve in posi positions of leadership, any kind of leadership, mid-management, upper management, in any kind of work situations, mm -hmm. oftentimes we feel conflicted that our style of leadership yeah. is not that masculine style mm -hmm. of leadership that is ubiquitous or it's all around us. What do you think women who work in other sectors can take from what you learned about how to bring some of that female leadership style in? Yeah. You know, the, the Marine Corps is very much that narrow-minded model. There's a certain type of leadership. It's, it's, it's not just masculine, it's toxically masculine. So it's, it's tough to the point of being aggressive. It's loud to the point of being obnoxious. It's just, yeah. you know, it's the extreme of all of, uh, of masculinity. Whereas leadership has nothing to do with masculinity or femininity, I think. I think it has to do with connect, connecting with people and being able to, to inspire them to be their best, right? To get the most out of people's potential. Um, and so every person is different in leadership. You might be you know, more on the sort of quiet side of leadership, but be able to really connect and inspire, connect with and inspire people. Listening goes such a long way. It's traditionally associated with femininity, but, you know, if you're a guy and you listen, my God, you know, you're, you're, people mm. will respect you so much. Um, allowing people to express their ideas, also associated with femininity. But so basically finding, finding what's natural to you, your natural strengths and, and skills is really important for, especially I think a woman in leadership, um, because we're pressured so much to, to be like these aggressive yeah, guys. Agreed. You know, like, why is that the model? Yeah. Like, you know, that's so fear-based. It really is. Yeah. It's sort of power-based. Yeah. yeah. Right? I don't know that if that's really leadership as much as it is kind of getting people to fall in line. Um, yeah, I really encourage. Well, you, know, you have to learn to be tough in the sense of resilient, but women already have that. Like, women are resilient. Sometimes we forget it, though. Yeah. Right? So we have to relearn, I think, to assert our, our, resilience. our yeah. resilience. Like my mother. Yeah. Um, just grab the Drag microphone and, and then be how you are, right? You don't have to yeah. shout. You don't have to be aggressive. Be, be firm. Be yourself. Find out who you are. One part of the podcast we do is we're looking for one thing that listeners can do in their own lives in, um, to look at the issues of surrounding women and work. What is one thing that you think they can do? I would say get curious about your mothers. So do you know what your mother went through? And if not, have a conversation with her. That's a really good one. We're such big fans of the book. I've loved reading Unbecoming. Um, I hear you have some exciting news about it. What's going on? Yes, it's just been optioned for television series and being produced and uh, being produced by Frida Pinto and starring Frida Pinto. So hopefully you'll see her on the screen as a U.S. Marine. And I think one thing, uh, you know, when people think about the book, it's also, there's a lot of very G.I. Jyoti. Sorry. I'm not. I'm going <laughs> to stop it. <interrupting. laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I, knew, I did not. <laughs> Isn't that that scene was so great? Can you have that book? be the working title? <laughs> G.I. Jyoti. <laughs> just, just, 
the patriarchy <laughs> oh oh miss sweet women in labor is made by christina mcgilvery laura quinn aditi mittal Manya Sachdeva, Sonakshi Chowdhury, Nandita Gupta, Sonali Thakkar, Ipti Patnaik, Rose Higgins, Porva Jassy, Regina Hawkins, Kashish Sethi, and Priyanka Verma. This podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center New Delhi. The opinions, findings, and conclusions stated are those of women in labor and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State. For more information on the podcast, visit womeninlabor.com or search Women in Labor on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.